Morning. Welcome to Plainfield Bible Church. It's so great to be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. And the Lord gave me a bonus hour today. I'm pretty sure that's why he did it, so that I could go even longer. No, I, that's not true. Kathy Kronbacher said she brings snacks, you know, just in case, Skittles and things. So you may want to consider that going forward. No, that's not going to happen. That's not why God did that. But we do know what we're here for. We do know exactly what we're here for. Whether you're an hour late or an hour early, it doesn't matter. We're here to glorify the name that is above every name. If you were not here for hour one, that should be required listening, learning, reading, hearing, because what we heard, and I knew what he was going to be teaching, so in fairness, I knew, but what we heard was exactly who our Savior is and exactly what he did and how magnificent it was and still is and will always be. And if we cannot remember and understand exactly who our Savior is, who didn't hold on, as you heard articulated so well in hour one, didn't hold on to the glories of heaven, didn't hold on and said, this is mine and I'm not, keep, I'm not sharing this. This is mine, and I don't need to help these pathetic sinners that I've created who have rebelled against me. And held on to these things and the glories of heaven, which I'll tell you, all of us would have. All of us would have. We would have said mine. We would have held on to that. But no, our Savior, in his incredible love, decided that he would leave the glories of heaven and humble himself and take on flesh And he did that for you, and he did that for me. The reason I bring this back up is because I realize not all of you were there, but you should be reminded of the truth of why you are saved, what grace you are walking in, and who it is you serve. And everything else that I say today, if you don't understand that, will land as, 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 um, as empty. It won't make sense. If you don't understand who Christ is, what an incredible reminder. And I'm sure as you read those things and it was reminded to you, you believer, and maybe, maybe some who don't know the Lord, it makes you tremble on the inside of the incredible love that he has for us. The Holy Spirit working and convicting you as you hear that. So I say that I'm not going to go two hours. <laughs> That's not going to happen. But I wanted to remind you of why you are here. It is the worship, the one and only true God who is worthy of it. And be reminded of what he has for us to do this week, this week in this moment, uh, for his will and for his glory. An incredible opportunity that we all have to be here together to do this collectively. Let me pray before we jump into the text today. Heavenly Father, we love you. And all that I just said about you, I pray to you now. We thank you for it. We humbly come bowing at our knee to you, even in spirit. Because you're the only one that can fill the throne you're sitting in. You're the only one that's worthy of it. You're the only one who could accomplish this incredible cup of wrath that you you satisfied. You're the only one. And so we praise you for that, and we thank you for that. And I pray that you'll move in our hearts. As has already been mentioned this morning, there are those here who maybe maybe still don't know. They may have heard your gospel. They haven't responded to it. I pray that you draw them to yourself today, that you convict them yet one more time. The time is short. Today is the day. And that you'll move in their hearts, that they'll surrender their life, that they will put their faith in your Son and His work on the cross only, that by grace they could be saved through faith, that they will understand that it's not of themselves, but it's a gift from you. And it's incredible. And I pray that they would yield and believe and repent today. But then for those of us who've known you a long time, We've been walking with you, that we are renewed in our spirit, that we keep our eyes focused on you, your son, and what he has done, to then now live lives worthy of the calling, but to understand that this incredible freedom of grace, that we are now no longer tied and yoked to the law, but that we now have a responsibility, we have an honor to be able to live for you, for your glory, for for your praise, and for your work. So I pray that we can see that today, and then be unified together in one word, and that is love. Love flowing down from heaven to us, and then that extending to those around us. I pray that we can see that today. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the time you've given us for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So today, Galatians chapter 5, please turn there with me. Let us jump right back into this study that we have been on for quite some time. In Galatians, just as a reminder as we go there, Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Galatians, this incredible epistle, Paul's first from what we can see, that he kind of for us does a job of outlining what's important, does the hard work of going through doctrine and understanding the doctrine, using the Old Testament and understanding that Old Testament and applying it to our lives today. And as I've reminded you a few times, what we've seen is this explanation of doctrine, the illustration of doctrine, and now we're in this rich text of the application of doctrine. We put it into practice. And last time, last week, with you together collectively, we saw from Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 through 12, Paul breaking down the importance and the, the, the trouble with making legalism a part, a part of your walk with Christ. And let me just tell you, it can't be. It doesn't equate. It doesn't work. And Paul helped us understand the different reasons why legalism is not on the table for us, that this cannot be. Adding something to the cross is not a possibility. It needs nothing. It contains, it, it requires nothing. It contains all that we need for salvation. It's all that we need for eternal life. Paul reminded us of this. And because of that, we need to be careful as we, as his ambassadors, and we are the one who have this honor to share this precious gift this eternal gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to never attach anything to that. Never lay that yoke on someone. And Paul gave us that reminder last week that we need to be careful about that. We need to not be false teachers ourselves. We need to make sure that's not happening. And then going forward, as I mentioned before, today we're going to talk about the condemnation of using your freedom for evil. The freedom you have You are saved by grace. There is nothing more you need to do. You must embrace that absolutely to the praise and the glory of Jesus Christ, as we have already heard today. Thank goodness he was the propitiation. He satisfied. He satisfied, and only he could. However, now what? Now what do we do? And that's this week. Next week we'll hear, as we continue going forward in the next two weeks, the sins of the flesh, the temptation to fall back into those old traits, and then the fruit of the Spirit that should be coming out in our life. So that's coming forward for us. Today, however, here's what we're going to see in Galatians five thirteen through 15. Let me read the text through, and then we'll just begin to break this down. So you should be in Galatians chapter 5, if you're not already. Let me read the text through, and then we will, we will see what the Lord has for us today. So coming off of verse 12... We understand the danger of legalism. Into verse 13, here's what Paul says. For you, believer, were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Hmm. We got a lot in those for those just those three uh, uh, verses, don't we? There's a lot here for us to consume and understand, and for the Lord to illuminate for us. But here's what we're going to see today. In brief, number one in verse thirteen, be careful that we use our freedom properly. We use that freedom properly. Absolutely, you are saved. You don't have to earn it, and you can't impress him. And when we honestly think about what we heard in hour one, do you think you can impress him? Do you think you can bring something to the table that will make him be in awe of you? I don't think so. We need to understand that freedom is all because of him. But to use that properly. And then verse 14, what is that one word? Now I'm sure you've gone ahead. You good students, you know what that one word is. I'm sure you could probably figure out that one word even if you didn't know this passage and if we hadn't just read it. But to love one another, that one word packed with so much doctrine, theology, understanding, and truth. And I'll just challenge you with this before we get there. This kind of love only comes from above. That kind of love. Not the love you have for your dog or your children. That's nice. But the love that comes from above, that flows through us because of the cross that we heard of, 
that love. And then verse 15, your brother and sister is not your enemy. You have an enemy. There is an enemy. Sometimes you're your own enemy, but your brother and sister in Christ is not your enemy. So that's what we'll see going forward. So let's go, first of all, to what we ended with last week, what we heard last week. Now, one of the passages I I extracted from last week's message, I think, gives us an understanding going forward in connection with what we heard in hour one that I knew you would hear in hour one. But if you remember, I took you here a little further in the Philippians study, which we will get there eventually in Philippians chapter three. But remember Paul's conclusion. Remember Paul's conclusion, and this will help us as we go forward so that we can put that aside and now go forward. Here's Paul's conclusion about his self-righteousness, the legalism that he certainly had running through his veins as a Pharisee, one of the best of the best, as he would say. Maybe you think of yourself as one of the best of the best churchgoers, Christians, whatever that might be. You follow the rules, you do all the things, you dot the I's and cross the T's. Paul felt the same way, but here's his conclusion. Indeed, I count everything, all that stuff that I thought I was earning it, impressing him with, as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Gnosis, knowing here, experiencing him, intimately knowing Christ and him knowing me. That knowing Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul understood what it takes By grace you've been saved through faith. That is a total surrender. I can't do it on my own. I need him entirely, fully, because of who he is and who I am. That's finding Christ, gaining Christ. Verse 9, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's the key that we took away from last week. That has to be our heart set and our heart mind as well. It has to be. And then, of course, we ended last service difficultly. I took you to the wrong place, if you remember, but from 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you remember from that text, and I won't take you there, but just in brief, you were a chosen race. Remember, you're a chosen race because of this, that you've been predestined as a holy nation, that because of what Christ has done, as we heard in, in our one, You are a people for his own possession that you can proclaim the good news. Remember, that's what I left you with last week. That because of all of these things, you now have a responsibility. You have a responsibility and an honor, and God has challenged you to proclaim this excellencies of him who called you. Oh, that's incredible language that Peter wrote. Now, we know the Holy Spirit wrote it because he wants us to understand that all of this comes from above. The words that, come, that, that we see in the Word of God are inspired, they are divine, they are eternal, and the message that you have, that you get to proclaim, these excellencies, they come from above as well. So incredible. So, here's the overall theme, one word, this one word of love is going to drive this entire sermon. What we do, why we do it, is because of the love that Christ has for us and the love we must have for the people around us. Love. The love that Christ gives. So, point one. What freedom in Christ should look like? What should this be? Using your freedom properly. Let's look back at this passage again. Verse 13. Here's what we see. I have put up the ESV and the NAS before us. They are almost identical. But there's a few different words that are slightly different. Let me read this from the ESV and you can see the differences in the NASB. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The NASB uses, instead of use your, you'll see turn your, turn your. And I I like that, and here's why I like that. That means you're going to morph it into something it shouldn't be. You're turning it into something it shouldn't be. See, what Christ has designed for us in salvation, as I talked about last week, grace is so much more than pardon. It's walking in him. It's looking like him. It's being transformed into his likeness, as we'll see today again. So turning it into something it shouldn't be, using it for something it shouldn't be, is a grave danger that we're being warned against from Paul here. Be careful. I also want you to notice another thing here, the word opportunity used in both translations here. This particular word is used typically in the Greek language 
for a kind of a starting point or a rallying point for a military operation with aggression to do something, to attain something, to go out and attack something. That is not what we're to do. That is to take something for ourselves using that opportunity, a starting base for a military operation to go conquer something, take something. That's not what salvation is for. Salvation that has been given to us is for the opportunity to share it with those around us who also desperately need a Savior. That's what we'll see today. So very interest, interesting that we see these interest, fascinating Greek words that as we look and unpack them to understand more about what God is telling us. And, and I think as we go through this today, you'll see that it's going to be, as we heard in hour one as well, the struggle between pride and humility. Isn't it always that? Isn't it always that? Our pride, I, I, honestly, if you go back to any sin that you can think of, anything you struggle with, that's you wanting to do something that God doesn't want you to do. That God knows there's a better way and you believe you know better. Isn't that an interesting thing? Here's how, here's how Peter puts this. And maybe Peter puts this better than anyone in the, tech, in the scriptures with, with regard to this particular struggle of freedom versus oper, or, of, of, of responsibility. And he gives us this understanding of who you are. And let's just take a look at this from 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 15 through 17, back to 1 Peter 2. This is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Let me pause there for a moment. Anytime we hear the will of God, we need to perk up. This is what God wants. This is what God desires. And let me tell you something, Christian. God's will will always happen. Your desire should be that it happens through you. That you're the servant, and I'm going to tell you, not servant, Dulos, slave that's coming up, you're the one you want him to work through. And if you're not willing to do it, God's will isn't just going to come to a halt and, oh no, what's going to happen? No, no, God's going to use somebody else. But let me get back to the text, verse 16. You live, Christian, as people who are free. You're not yoked to the, to the, to the, uh, the law. You're not stuck wondering, do I, can I earn it? Have I earned it today? Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants, slaves of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Notice the word that is used to follow this up. Love and honor other people. Even people you don't like. I've said this before when I've used this text in the past. Have you ever considered who the emperor is at this moment in time in human history? Nero who is a savage. This week in my 12th grade Bible class, as you many of you know, I'm teaching apologetics. We're going to look at some of the extra-biblical texts that defend the faith, or at least in part reference Christ to then help us to defend the faith. But there is an articulation of what Nero did to the Christians in Rome right around the time of the, the burning of Rome. And of course, as you know, he blamed Christians for this and used that false uh, claim to then torture them in horrific ways. Peter's well aware of who Nero is. He's going to lose his life at the hands of Nero in, under his authority, but yet he tells us to love him, honor him, to love the people around us, that this is our responsibility. Who is your allegiance to? Is it to the world, to yourself, to your ease, to your, to your happiness, or is it to the Almighty God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that every knee will bow to someday? Who is your allegiance to? So the concluding understanding of this is you have freedom in Christ. You don't have to follow the law to be saved, but you have a responsibility to be a slave. I wrote servant, slave of the Lord to accomplish his will, to serve others for the sake of the gospel. Here's how Alistair Begg puts this, and I think he does a great job. I wish I could do his accent for you, and that might make you really impressed, but I cannot. You'll have to stick with the country hick accent that I have. Here's what it says. Maybe it loses something. Freedom in Christ is one of the great benefits of knowing God. Many Christians rightly value this wonderful gift. It's common, however, for people to tout this freedom as a rationale for doing what they want, when they want, with whomever they want. Believers with a mistaken notion of Christian freedom may watch things they shouldn't watch, can be influenced by people they shouldn't imitate, and can say things they shouldn't say. All the while foregoing the biblical instruction and Christian fellowship. 
In the words of Peter, they are using freedom as a cover-up for evil. Freedom in Christ, is the Bible, as the Bible defines it, is not simply liberation from outside demands. It is liberation from sin in order that we might turn and become slaves of righteousness. And he's making reference to Romans six eighteen, And we, of course, know this. It's a very short verse. But having been set free from sin, I have become a slave of righteousness, a slave of Jesus Christ. Remember, as a believer, your righteousness is from Christ alone. You don't have one of your own. The great exchange has happened. You've offered your sin, and he has imparted, Im, Im, imputed his righteousness onto you. So what Alistair is understanding, that Peter understands, that we need to understand very clearly here is, you're saved, you're free, you can't earn your salvation, absolutely, but that does not give you a license to then do what you please, when you please, because you're then missing the point. You're here to be a servant to the people around you. You're here to serve the Lord, which he says is, is shown and, and displayed in your life by serving the people around you. And you serve them in the best and most efficient and effective way by being an example that is walking in holiness and repentance so that you can deliver the gospel to them accurately. So that you can deliver it to them and that they don't say, yeah, but look at your life. Look at your inconsistency. I don't see transformation there. I don't see regeneration there. I hear what you're saying, but I don't see it in your life. See, freedom in Christ allows us to not earn it, but it also gives us this incredible responsibility to be that ambassador that is consistent in their walk so that we will be effective at delivering his word. That's what it means, to serve others to serve others. I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be in three different passages in 1 Corinthians. We'll start in chapter 6. I'll go in order for you. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul gives us a greater understanding of this in 1 Corinthians. Now I'll tell you, as you turn there to set this up a little bit, we need to have a, a, a reset in our minds, maybe like the church in Corinth did. The church in Corinth continually struggled with going back to sins of the flesh. Paul had to remind them of, this is not the way you are anymore. This is what you once were. There is a struggle because the world around us, and boy, I think our world is becoming more and more like the old Roman world. And there is a lot of sins of the flesh that are becoming normalized around us. And there is a tendency for us to potentially begin to soften and begin to give in to some of these things. I think that is the challenge for us today as well. And this was a challenge to the church in Corinth. So he's continually talking to them about this. So in context, that's what we're looking at. But 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. Look at what it says. Here's what Paul says about what he can do. His freedom. All things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. few things to unpack here. Everything I certainly can do, going beyond the, the law of the Old Testament, I certainly have the ability, and as Paul's thinking of some of the things that we wouldn't even consider sinful, but he's no longer tied down to with regards to the Jewish law, maybe dietary restrictions or how he dresses or what he does. Or what day he considers Sabbath and what day he does not. These sorts of things. But it goes beyond that. It goes beyond the fact that you can't earn your salvation and you can't lose it. But wait a minute. Let's just pause. You have the license to do so many things. But you need to consider, is it helpful? Helpful to what? Helpful to the gospel. Helpful to the brother and sister around you that maybe needs your support and your encouragement, as we'll see today, that maybe needs that word from the Lord and the consistent walk that you have, and he, you are maybe the example that they need to see. Maybe you're going to be the Paul that says, follow me as I follow Christ. So be careful about that license. They're all lawful for me, but I won't be dominated by anything. Nothing's going to be, yeah, but it's mine. I have the right, so I'm going to do it. That can't be our way. And of course, this may speak of addiction, potentially. Moving on to 1 Corinthians 8. You're in 1 Corinthians 6, go a couple chapters over, 8. Paul then takes this again. You're going to see him do this three times, four if we really look at it when we go further down the road. 1 Corinthians 8, as you're in 1 Corinthians. Speaking of the right, the right to, to do what you please, the right to, to eat what you want, etc. Not following the law, but remember, all of this sinful behavior was around them at the time too. But take care, he says, verse 9. 
1 Corinthians 8, verse 9, that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. Sure, it might not even be a sin what you say, I have the right to do this. Maybe. It could be. Maybe it's not a sin at all. But it is a sin, let me challenge you, if it's making somebody else stumble. If it's making somebody else struggle. That's what we're going to see here. That's what we clearly see. That if it's making somebody else further away from Christ, then you're not doing your job. Your job is to bring people closer to the Son of God. To see them Him more clearly. To see the truth and the incredible, magnificent plan of salvation that you get to live out in this transformed life. So we need to be careful about that. So as he says this, be careful. There are those around that maybe don't understand they don't understand. They don't get it. And, it's, and you, should be, you should say in your heart, it's worth it to, for me to give this up. It's not even a sin, but it's worth it for me to give this up. I use this example with my students all the time. And, and this certainly can be debatable, but the Bible does not restrict someone from drinking alcohol. It's not a sin. Drunkenness is. Having something dominate you, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 6, certainly could be. But drunkenness is really the restriction However, I tell my students, you're not going to see Mr. Johnson at a bar. You're not going to see, he may go to Buffalo Wild Wings to watch a sport, but he's not going to be sitting there drinking a beer. And I tell him it's not because it's a sin, because I can willingly, easily give that up. I don't need that because I've got young kids looking at me all the time. I've got little kids watching me all the time. They know that's Mr. Johnson. He's the Bible teacher. Look at him. He's drinking a beer. He's probably drunk. I I probably, I'm not, but I don't want to, I don't want a stumbling block. I don't want to give them an opportunity to say, well, he says it's okay, it's okay for me. And what if they have a problem with alcoholism in their family? What if they've seen a mother or a father that struggles with it, and then they think, well, he's just like that. He's dominated by that. He's just like the world. Now, maybe that's a poor understanding for them, but I'm not going to put a stumbling block in their way. I don't desire to do that. Now, this doesn't make me more righteous than you, but it's an example from my own life that I can give that up. That's not hard because it's not necessary for the gospel. And if it's a stumbling block, I don't want that to happen. Go on to chapter 10. Go on to chapter 10. I'm spending a little time here, but it's important. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So you're in 8, now you go to 10. 10's up on the screen, but look at it in your own Bibles. He says it again. He keeps coming back. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful for the gospel. All things are lawful, but not all things build up yet another piece. Mm, I want to build up my fellow and brother and sister in Christ. We're going to see this today further on in the text. Think about this incredible thing we have in the fellowship of the body of believers, right? That we come together to encourage one another, stir up one another to love and good deeds, as we'll see in Hebrews 10 later. That we want to build up, not tear down. If there's a risk of that, we are doing ourselves and the kingdom work a disservice and we're in sin. Look at what we heard that we heard from, from our one the last two weeks. Let no one seek his own good. Huh. That sounds very familiar to what Paul told the church in Philippi. That it's not you, it's, it's, it's the people around you. But the good of his neighbor. You consider others more important than yourself. Huh. It seems like this was a struggle for them and it's a struggle for us. So in summary of this particular section, look at this. There are situations where it's just better to give something up for the sake of leading other people to Jesus. Very generally, you just got to look at that on case-by-case basis. I'm not here to tell you the right or wrong on about all of these things, but keep in mind, you may know this is not even a sin in my life, but if it's causing someone else to sin, it's just crossed the line. It's not about you, it's about the people around you, and it's about your Savior, and that's what he's called us to. Point two, our focus should be building up fellow believers to to make them more like Christ, because you expect them to do that for you right? You want them to do this for you. Fellow believers are, and we want to reveal the truth of God's word and the gospel to the non-believers. So there's, it's twofold. And then third point, when Paul reminds us that we shouldn't be dominated by anything, even some of the things that are okay, even some of the things that are, are not outside God's moral law can become a sin if they become an obsession for you. They can be, even relationships. You know, we know as husbands, that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. If your wife is more important to you than your relationship with Christ, you've just crossed a line. And I'm not telling you you shouldn't love your wife. You should, self-sacrificially. Wives, the same. You, 
This is even more common. I'll tell you, tell you this as a teacher. Child worship is a pretty popular thing to do today. Is it good to love your children? Absolutely. Yeah, raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, no doubt about it. But if they're more important to you than your relationship with Christ, you have crossed the line. Even things that are good can be a, a problem, can be an obsession, can be an addiction. And then finally, one more thing in 1 Corinthians 9. So if you're in 1 Corinthians, still go back to chapter 9. So we've d- bounced around 1 Corinthians. Paul does it again. So fourth time here, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is where we should see this now. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. And I went back to Galatians, so I'll have to go back there with you. All right, here we go. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Now, just to keep this in mind, to give you context on this, Paul is dealing with here not being financially burdened by having excessive debts to the people around you. Paying your taxes, understanding that we have a financial responsibility as representative of Christ to to be good with our money. So that's the context of what we're seeing here. But look at how he mentions this, brings it back to the things that's most important. Look at verse 19. Okay? Verse 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I want to make sure that I'm in the right place this time, just in case I won't repeat last week. Here's what it says, 1 Corinthians 9, 19. And he hasn't received financial compensation from anyone. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. I'm not going to take your money. That I may win more of them. To the Jews I've become as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I've become one as under the law. Though not being myself under the law, that I may win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I may save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So Paul is speaking about the right that he had to take maybe money from people, talking about the finances. He says, ah, that's not something I'm going to take. I could. I have the right. But in case that's a stumbling block for you, I'm not going to do that. But then he goes on to expand on this thought. I'm going to be all things to all people. Now, before you jump to the conclusion that he is going to be a people pleaser, you haven't met the Apostle Paul. That is not what he ever was and ever will be. What he is saying here is, I'm going to connect with all of them. Not immorally, I'm not going to go down the path that that maybe they are following that is immoral, that is sinful, but I'm going to try to connect. I'm going to do what I can to connect at every level of everyone that I encounter. If we look through the book of Acts as we have in the past, we see Paul taking this essential pattern. He goes to the Jewish people at the synagogue, presents the gospel, uses the Old Testament to articulate exactly how we see Christ in the Old Testament, in the law, in the prophets, And then inevitably, as many of them reject him, he takes it to the Gentiles. His message changes a little bit. The gospel doesn't, but his approach does. He's all things to all people. When he considers being a Jew, we understand that he would go back through the book of Acts. We see this in chapter 16, 18, 22, where he's even taking a Nazarite vow for a little while, cutting his hair, which would be a real problem for my boys if I told them they need to take a Nazarite vow and cut their hair. They like the part about the Samson to let their hair grow long, but imagine if I said, no, there's a reverse of this. And Paul actually made a vow outside of Jerusalem, and in the result of that, when he had fulfilled it and he gets back to the temple, one of the the parts of that Nazarite vow is to cut his hair off and then present it almost as an offering. He would continue to do these sorts of things. You might remember I mentioned last week that he had Timothy circumcised. This thing that they had just debated about that he condemned, that we shouldn't depend on that for salvation, he still didn't. But it was one of those things that he was willing to have Timothy do. Timothy was willing to, by the way, you kind of need to be willing as a grown man to have that happen to you. He was willing for the sake of the Jews so that he could present the gospel to them. Not to show them that he needed it for salvation, but so they'd listen to him. He's going to be all things to all people for the sake of the cross. He did this with the Gentiles. He did this with those who were weak, those who were strong. He found a way to connect. He found a way to take away those things that they might be prejudging him on that maybe are irrelevant. But he brought the pure gospel every time. That's what we're dealing with, whatever it takes. Do you have that mindset of whatever it takes for the sake of the gospel? I'm going to tell you something. You will when you face Jesus someday. And Christian, I'm talking to you. you, we heard this reference in hour one. Christian, you, you will face Jesus. 
The judgment seat of Christ is a real event, and you should be longing for it. I'm going to end with that. We should be longing to see our Savior, but all that's going to matter is the gospel then. And what you did in your life with the talents, the gifts, the opportunities that you had to present the gospel to people, and were you willing to sacrifice, were you willing to to give of yourself, to give up things for the sake of the cross. That's what's going to be analyzed, what you allowed the Holy Spirit to do through you, what Christ did through you for the sake of the gospel every single time. Remember, Christ said, I came to seek and save the lost. Remember, John tells us that he wrote his gospel so that people could be saved, that you'd hear this incredible story of Christ, the one who came, the word becoming flesh, so that people could be saved. That is what we have to be about. That's what we have to be about. Second piece to this, freedom in Christ is also evidence. If we look at our life, we should see that there is more than just a responsibility. There's more than that. It's evidence that we know Christ. Look at what Christ says here, Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 through 50. So Jesus, this is what he says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Now, I'm going to pause there. His mothers and brothers, mother believed that he was the Messiah. She knew firsthand he was the Messiah, but his brothers, not so much. Matter of fact, they'd make fun of him. They would, they would even kind of goad him in, you recall, a situation where James is trying to get him to go to Passover in Jerusalem. If you're really the Messiah, let's see you. Let's see you prove it, that sort of idea. But his mother's brothers, he also had sisters. I would say they probably didn't believe either. They wanted to speak to him, but notice his response. He replied to the man who told him, Who's my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands towards his disciples, followers of his, his apostles, he said, Here's my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and my mother. Notice Jesus saying in the upper room that, that fateful night before the crucifixion, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John 14. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John 15, we know what he says when he's, he's saying, there's no greater love than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. And you're my friends if you keep my commands. There is a premium Christ puts on doing what he says. Is this earning it? No, it's not. It's evidence that you've been transformed. It's evidence that you're a different man, you're a different woman. It's evidence that that incredible power of the Holy Spirit is at work in you. That he has made you something new. That you're a new creation, a new creature, as Paul talks about. So what do we see? One degree of glory to another. This passage is incredible when we consider this freedom in Christ is freedom to become more like Christ. Let me repeat that. This freedom in Christ is really the reality is your freedom now to become more like him. You realize following the law, you don't become more like him. You just fail every day. You just come short every day. You just see in the mirror of the law, which is what it is, I'm, no what, I'm nothing like him. I can't do it. But your freedom in Christ gives you the opportunity to be transformed into his likeness. You don't have it otherwise. You can't even start down the road without the grace that comes from Christ, the salvation that happened at the cross. Here's what Paul says. 2 Corinthians three seventeen and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from sin, certainly. That's freedom from the futile attempts that I just mentioned of trying to keep the law. And we all, Notice he says now, he connects the dots with unveiled face. Now we see it. Behold, the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image, the image of Christ, becoming more like him. We're all being transformed into that. But look, from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Notice the connection. This is progressive sanctification. That yes, you're free to do whatever you want, but no, you're free to become more like him. There's a freedom to become more like Christ. Now we're all in different places in this. We're all in different places in this. Of course, I'm way ahead of all the rest of you. Naturally, I'm standing up here, right? No, that's not the case at all. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you this, and anybody who's ever been behind a pulpit like this, you're more exposed than anybody else. And I don't mean when my pants ripped. That's not what I mean for a few weeks ago. I mean, you can see from studying God's Word, I can just see how insufficient I am and how much more I need this progressive sanctification, how I need to get to that next level of glory that I'm not at. It is not that way. But this is the reality. We're all on that path, those of you who are in Christ, those of you who have put your faith in Jesus. Those that he has saved, he is doing this to you. This is happening, and we can push him back. We can, we can resist, believe it or not, God gives you the right to resist him. It's shocking. You're going to be miserable, I'll warn you. If you do, if you're a Christian and you resist this, you'll be miserable. 
but we could. God's saying, no, no, open yourself up. You have the freedom to do this, and guess is what God wants from you. A little further on in Philippians, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to hit Philippians a few times. Notice how Paul puts this when he's talking about his own walk. Philippians 3.12, just briefly, he's saying that I have not already obtained this, or am I imperfect, but I press on to make it my own. See, there's a part of this that, that you take part in, that you yield, that you study, that you, you understand what God's trying to do to you and in you. And here's why, he says, because Christ Jesus had made me his own. He did this, so much like what we heard from Peter in 1 Peter 2. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining toward what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's not saying he's trying to pursue salvation. He's trying to say, I want to become more like him. I want to become more like him. I want, to, I want people to see him in me. I want, I want there to be an evidence in my own life that I can say, I'm not what I was 10 years ago. I was saved then, but I'm not what I was. He's now transforming, and I'm, I'm shooting forward, and I say, I, and I want to be more like him next, in the next 10 years. And, and I want to do that for the next 20 years until the Lord allows me to stay here anyway. Upward call of God in Christ Jesus, verse 15. Notice what he says, a challenge to you. Let those of you who are mature think this way. Hmm. So, mature Christian, think this way. This is your freedom. You have the freedom to be this way. He's given you this right. And if anything of you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you also. <laughs> You'll get it because he's your, you're his and he knows you and he's going to transform you and he loves you. He's going to reveal that to you. Then he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Okay, so we clearly see that this is about becoming more like him. Now, I like to go back to our Puritans every so often. Now, bear with these Puritans. When we quote the Puritans, they have a different level of speaking than we do. But bear with me. I think there's a lot of truth in here. And this one comes from Richard Sibbs. Go back to the 1600s with me for just a second. Here's what it says. Progressive sanctification. Here's what he says. The apostle exalteth the gospel in this high and excellent privilege of it, that it is plain and evident and full of demonstration, and that the light of it is not terrifying and amazing, but sweet and comfortable. Do you view the gospel that way and the transforming power of it? Sweet and comfortable. So that we may with much liberty and boldness of spirit look constantly upon the great and glorious things set before us in it, although it be no other but the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is moreover such an efficacy and working power in this ministry of the gospel as it will not suffer men to remain the same without alteration as they did under the Moses ministry, the Mosaic law. Though he was read daily, the, Moses, the law of Moses was read daily, but it will change them even into the image of Jesus Christ, the gospel, and carry them on still on that image and likeness from one degree of glory to another after a most admirable and spiritual manner of working. What an eloquent way to say, this is happening, and you need to be a part of this, and it's superior to the Mosaic Law. This is where your freedom lies in becoming more like Christ. You have the ability to do this now. Okay, verse 14. Verse 14. So when verse 14, we're, he's making a slight transition. What the freedom of Christ looks like, this idea that the whole law is fulfilled in one single word. Galatians 5, if you're back there, but I'll bring it up on the screen. I've got the ESV and NAS before us again. These are almost identical. One more time. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. And it says here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then in, in the NASB, in this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Almost identical. Almost exact. Now, before we even begin to come into this, do not misinterpret this as so many have in modern-day Christianity. Oh, i got to love myself, and then I can love other people. That is not what this is saying at all. So hopefully you will not see that as we go through this. As a matter of fact, loving of self is not something you need to learn. And it isn't something I have to learn. I've been really good at that since I can remember. I love myself really well, and I've done that since I was an infant. And I think you can understand that true. That's not what it's saying. This is a whole different animal. I want to take you back to something from last week, and this will help us a little bit in Galatians 5. If you're in Galatians, remember what we saw in verse 6. Look at verse 6. I'll bring it up on the screen, but it says this. In Christ, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through what? Love. The love of Christ for you 
through you to other people. That this is the driving force. What put Jesus on the cross? His love for you. His love for mankind. What put him there? What allowed him to, what made, he shouldn't say allowed him, what, what put him in a position where he'd allow humans to put him there? It's his love. I mean, it's staggering to consider only seven things said from the cross that we know of that are recorded in Scripture. But one, is, one of them is, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He took the time and extra pain to say that. Amazing. But that's, what he, that's the sort of love that we have. But the faith that you have, if you're in Christ, is driven by that love. And that love should be spreading out to the people around you. Go to Matthew chapter 22 with me. Matthew chapter 22. We were there this morning in Matthew. But let's go back there. Matthew chapter 22. I'll turn there with you. Matthew 22, verse 34. Matthew 22, 34. Twenty-two, thirty-four. So as we know, Christ often was, was challenged. He was questioned, usually for the purpose of trying to trip him up. His enemies, the, those who were clinging to that Old Testament law, remember who his enemies were. Those who wanted that man-made righteousness, they really loved it. It was something that they were about, and they wanted their Messiah to be about it too. They liked to question him, and that's what's going on here. Notice what it says in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, which they were enemies, so they were okay with that, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, so he knew the Levitical law, that's the sort of lawyer we're dealing with here, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with your heart and with your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, is the key for us, depend all the law and the prophets. Hmm. These two commandments have something in common. They have something very easy to see in common. Notice what we see here in this very brief passage where Christ is giving us the top two according to him. Clearly, to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, everything that you are, requires him, by the way. It requires his grace. You cannot do that alone. What this Pharisee doesn't understand that Christ is saying to him is, I want you to consider what that means. Imagine having, here's the requirement, and I'm going to try to help you understand it and myself to understand it. Here's the requirement. If you want to do this alone, is you got to do this 24-7, 365. You got to love him with everything you have all the time, following every law, every second. That is what it takes to honestly please the Lord, to love him with everything you are. Now, if you're honest with yourself, that is not you, and that is not me. I haven't done that today. I haven't done that in the last few minutes, probably, standing up here. That is not possible without Jesus Christ. Anytime they are trying to test him, they should have been testing themselves, as Paul would say later. Test yourself. See if you're in the faith. This is not a possibility without Jesus Christ. It's possible for him. He's the only one who fulfilled the law. He is the only one who satisfied the law and then hence satisfying the wrath of violating the law. But notice the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. You can't do that one either. Both of them have to do with loving with everything you are. Loving beyond human understanding and reckoning. These two two specific commandments, the whole law and prophets depend. Okay, that is a staggering thing to consider. Now, many people get stuck on this because they say, okay, that number one, I've seen that in Exodus chapter 20. That is number one. But number two seems like something Jesus made up. He did not make that up. This is also in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 19. He's referencing this, not in the top 10, but Christ has the right to take the whole law and condense it to these two. He wrote it. But he says this in Leviticus nineteen seventeen: you shall not hate your brother in your heart. Jesus makes that connection in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. Heart matters. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Your own sin generated in your own heart is what he's saying. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So we see this in the Old Testament. It isn't something that was new for them. He's saying, you do these two things right all the time, and you will be saved. 
This should bring us to our knees because we don't. It should have brought this lawyer to his knees. But this is what we're called to as believers who are redeemed too. Now that we know that this is the standard for salvation, we want to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. This is how he does it all the time. He does it this way constantly. He loved you so much that he left the glories of, of, the, of, of heaven and took on the horrific nature of the cross. He did that. So we understand that we're called to be like this too. This takes us to the golden rule. You're all very familiar with this. I think it's incredible that the public schools steal our truth here, but we'll let them have this one. You'll see this on the walls of, of many public schools. They just don't know they're quoting Christ. If they did, they'd take it down, but they don't know. And here's what it says. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. He says it again. That, that you consider other people. You want to be treated this way, you treat other people this way. This isn't self-love. This is loving other people in a dynamic, crazy, inhuman way. We don't do this naturally. Not by default. Notice he then transitions. So often we break these two. And I put a break in between, but they're broken. This is the very next verse. He's saying, this is the narrow path. Now, we clearly use this scripture. Narrow gate, the narrow way versus the wide way. The hard and narrow way versus the, the broad and, and easy way. We talk about this for salvation, and rightly we should. But he's saying, this is the result. See, when you put your faith in me and you walk with me, it is not easy to do what, we're, what I'm asking you to do. It is, you're not capable of it, but even now that you're saved and redeemed, this is not easy to do this, to love people this way. This is the narrow and hard way. This is what I've called you to. So this is a, kind of an incredible consistency that we see in Christ, that he continually goes back to saying, this fulfills the law. I fulfill the law, but now I want you to strive for this. Strive to be like me, because this is the way I act. This is the way I am. And we looked at last week, Jesus in the upper room, once again, a new commandment I give you that you should love one another. That's that self-sacrificing love. We don't see it anywhere else. It's a whole new dynamic. This is the hard way. It's the narrow way. That's certainly of faith in Christ, but then living like Christ. That's what we see. Now, what is Jesus talking about? This is very small. I realize that, but I also know you've seen the Ten Commandments before. Let me just, I don't, we're not going to go through all of these. I, I know you're familiar with them. I want you to know the love connection between all these, these passages. Notice the first four. You follow these, that's the love for God. The last six, this is your love for your neighbor. I don't know if you've ever seen that breakdown before, but this is exactly what Christ is referencing. When he says, everything depends on love, it's this. Following my law depends on loving me and then loving others. Once again, I'm going to remind you, you can't do this on your own. This doesn't come naturally to you. In order to even attempt to satisfy any one of those things, even in a moment, to truly, from an eternal perspective, you need the grace of Jesus Christ. You have to have it. But just notice, that's what he's referencing here. Everything balances on the love Christ has for us and the love we should have for others. This is what it's about. Notice how Paul puts this as we go forward in Romans 13. Owe no one anything. This is right back to that same idea of don't owing people money, managing your money, much, much like what we saw him challenging the Corinthians with and not taking their money. He comes back to money. He says, don't owe anybody anything. Owe nothing except to love each other. That you should do. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Paul says the same thing again. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. This is Christ-likeness in your life. Loving other people sacrificially, understanding that demanding your rights is taking rights away from somebody else. So much of what we've seen already. Notice that this is consistent in Scripture. Look at what John says, 1 John 5, 2-3. By this we know that we love the children of God. This is more evidence. It's about love. It's more than responsibility. And God in obeying his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Pastor referenced this morning, Matthew 11, had us all read it, if you recall. We were finishing this. The yoke of Jesus is easy, and the burden is light. Following Christ is not a burden, it's an honor. It's, it's peace. It's where true contentment comes from, is walking in this way. Is it narrow and hard? Yes. But it's better, and it's good. It's what God's called us to. Not because we have to to be saved, it's because we get to. That's the way to look at that. 
That's what we should think about. Romans 14, in that same vein, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide not to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know I'm persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, speaking of the ceremonial law of what you eat, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in what? Love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one in whom Christ died. This is all about love. Your freedom, yes, you have it. You can do what you please. And if you're saved, you're saved. You'll never lose it. Praise be to the Lord for that. Hmm. But you have a responsibility to love the people around you for the sake of the cross, for the sake of the kingdom. And then finally, verse 15. Verse 15. Your brother and sister is not your enemy. Hmm. Even if they have an opposing NFL team that they like, they're not your enemy. Even if they don't treat you kindly all the time, they're not your enemy. Even if they say things that are wrong sometimes, they're not your enemy. Even if they hurt you, they're not your enemy. Uh, This is important to understand that, um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the people sitting in here are all sinners just like you. I don't know if you guys have ever picked up on that before, but they are. So that means they're going to do things that are wrong. They're not going to do the things that are right all the time. But we need to remember that we are all on the same team. Here's what we see in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Be careful that you're not consumed, that you're not being destroyed. Here's what we see out of the Greek here. Bite, chomp, daknate to devour. It's almost like this is used oftentimes in the Greek for a wild animal devouring its prey, attacking it for selfish reasons. Why does an animal attack? Because it's hungry and it needs to eat and it wants to feed. And it's thinking about who? Itself. That's the sort of language that we see here from Paul. Don't be that type. Devour is annihilate. As a matter of fact, look at the Greek word. That's where our English word for annihilate comes from. To devour one of, destroy one another, considering that we were made in God's image, but even yet, if you're saved, that they were chosen just like you, undeserving, just like you, chosen to do the work of the gospel of an evangelist, just like you, given the great commission, just like you, saved for incredible things, sitting in divine heavenly places, just like you, and are working for the same purposes to please the Lord and accomplish his will, just like you. Why would we consume somebody who's on our team? My son just got finished with his football season, and unfortunately, as is the case for most teams, unless you win the state championship, you go out on a loss. That's the way it goes. But one thing football and other sports can teach you is that you're doing this for the brothers, your, your, your teammates, the, the people around you who are all trying to win this game. Sports teach us this. They teach us of a lot of bad things sometimes too, but they teach you that, that you're doing this for more than yourself. And I have the privilege of being able to be a part of a Christian football team where we can intertwine the biblical principle that, that drives that beyond sport that they should take to the, to the rest of their life. But you, you, you hammer this. Anybody who's ever coaches, you, we're all on the same team here. We're trying to work for the same goal. This is what we are to do. Your brother is not your enemy. Your sister is not your enemy. Where does the problem start? Why is this oftentimes the case? Well, Jesus gives us some insight. Mark seven twenty says this. What comes out of a person was what defiles him from, from within. Our heart, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensual, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. It's in you. It's in you and it's in me. Now, you've been given a new heart if you're in Christ. You're a different animal, no doubt about it. But this still likes to creep back in, doesn't it? This stuff can still happen. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. From the heart. And so often, by the way, Jesus connects the heart to the mouth. I would say even Isaiah does that in Isaiah 6. When, when the seraphim is, is putting that fiery coal on his mouth, but that gives him the, the forgiveness of sins, it connects it to the heart. I think that's what we're seeing there. The sacrifice that Christ made on the cross that Isaiah so clearly articulates in Isaiah 53. But that connection, there's something that comes out of our mouth. that defile, That's where we usually devour people, by the way. Is with what we say about them or to them or behind their back. Here's what James says, James 4, 1 through 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is, is it not this, that your passions are, with war, are at war within you? James is talking to Christians here. He's talking to believers. This fight that Jesus makes reference, the heart in Mark 7 and so other, many other passages, 
This is what's going on in you, and you're letting that win. You're giving into that. Verse 2, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly. You're asking for the wrong things, to spend it in your own passions. When we pray to the Lord, when we have desires, our hearts, our desires should be more like his. This goes back to progressive sanctification. If you delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. We know that. Absolute biblical truth. But what's that mean? You delight yourself in the Lord. You want what he wants now. You're yielding to his will, not your own. His kingdom, not your kingdom. What is written in this book and not the book of your mind and heart that is so twisted and morphed into what our culture wants and what we think we want. And of course, James ends, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Most of the time, the things that we want selfishly, we have learned from our culture and the things around us. Most of the time, the things that we see and pursue that are not Christ-like, that are sinful, that are selfish, they're what we see and it still appeals to the eyes. As Pastor mentioned in, in, in hour one, Christ was tempted in every way that we were, including the sins of the flesh, that what his eye could see, and what even tempted even tempted to just say, forget the cross, take the kingdom now. All of these things, we could be tempted in that way and are as believers. The Son of God is, con- is convic- or tempted in that way, so can we. So this is the challenge that he's saying. We don't want to be at en- an enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Consider the, 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 the side that you're on. Now, let's, let's finish this up. What are you here to do? What are we supposed to do with our brother? Not devour him, not destroy him, not to annihilate them. They're on our team. We should desire to help them become more like Christ. We should want them to to continue to do the will of the Father. But when we look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3, if you're you're looking at the passage I have up here right now, verse 3 says he's establishing Christ as the greater Moses, interestingly enough, in this passage. That he's greater than the law, if you go back in Hebrews 3. But notice... If that's our context, look at how he's taking us here. He's connecting these dots for us. The author of Hebrews, who we don't know who this is, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, is still connecting these dots for us. Take care. Be careful. Brothers, Christian, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But here's what you're to do. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. I love that because it is a reminder of the fleeting moments of life. Not a single day is promised to you beyond today in the moment you're in. Now, this could be because of death. This could be because Maranatha, the Lord may come today for you, as we'll talk about in a moment. But your job is to make the most of this moment to exhort your brother and sister, challenge them, help them to become more like Christ as you expect them to do with you. So notice what he says. Look at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end or firm to the end. If you're in Christ, we share in this. We're a team. We're all under the blood of Christ, and we're all his children. Incredible. We go back to what Christ said about his mothers and brothers and sisters. In eternity, we aren't going to rank people based on blood, only the blood of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now the context of this is the assurance of faith that comes through Christ and his sacrifice. That's earlier in chapter 10. Let us consider how to stir us, stir one another up to love and good works. Consider how we can. Think of new ways. Not to devour and destroy and annihilate, but stir one another up to love and good deeds. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Thank you for coming this morning. You've just fulfilled that part. But are you stirring one another up to love and good deeds? Are you doing what you can to show them the Word of God, to challenge them, encourage them, maybe even have to rebuke and correct them? And you've got to be willing to take that humbly. All of us do. All of us do. But encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see, again, he uses the word day, drawing near. But which day are we talking about here? I love talking about this. He's talking about the day of, of the Lord's return for his church. That's what he's talking about here. As we see that day coming, if you want a motivator, If you want something to encourage you, for me, it gives me chills even thinking about the consideration that today could be the ultimate day where I see my Savior face to face, where my faith can become sight, where all of the sin nature that I have is stripped away. He gives me a brand new body. I become more like him, ultimately glorified in him, and all of this because of what he has done. That day could be today. 
Do you need any more encouragement to make the most of the day that you have to serve this God that's going to do that for you than that? See, I don't see any other way to look at it other than this is what Christ has done for me. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4. This should make you think John 14, the upper room, where he went to prepare a place and said he's coming back. It should make you think 1 Corinthians 15. We say in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise first, but we who remain will be changed, will be changed in a moment. This is incredible. All three of these passages... Christ has framed them, either his own words or through the inspiration of the Spirit, to encourage you and stir you up. Let me read it. Look at what Paul says to the church in Thessalonica. We declare to you by a word from the Lord, this came from the top, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and are left remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we, we believers, will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Inspire one another with these words. The time you have to do the work of an evangelist is short. The time you have to let the progressive sanctification before the glorification happens, to become in the image of Christ in this world, to have an impact on the lost, dark, twisted world that we live in is short, it's fleeting, it's dust in the wind, and it's going to be gone before you know it. Things like this are temporal, but you have a moment in time where you get to do this. You have the freedom to do this, and you do it as a team. You look around you, this is your teammates, and there's more than just this. There's maybe less than we think, but there's more than just this that are out here working, doing this work, allowing the Lord to transform them into one level of glory to another, and you get to be a part of this. You get to have a stake in this. You get to have skin in the game because what happens here is he takes you to be with him, and he gives you all of these incredible things, and then unbelievably he lets you reign in his kingdom with him. You need motivation. You need motivation to stir one another up instead of tearing each other down. You need motivation to not use your freedom as a crutch or some excuse to do evil things. You need a motivation to praise and glorify the Lord in your actions. You need one greater than this. It's time to wake up. We need to give you some shock therapy. This is what it's all about right here. This is our great hope, and it could happen today. So make the most of the moments that you have here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you for all of these things. Gets me riled up. That's because of you. I can't believe what you've done for us. I can't believe what you continue to do for us, and I can't believe what you have in store. But you have called us to freedom, yes. But you've called us to not use that as a cover-up. And you've called us to not use that as a, as, a, as a way for an advantage to us, but to love one another. It's all simplified in one word, to love. I pray that we consider this for our own lives today, that it is more than just words, that it's eternal that it's a command, that it's a commission, and that it's a beautiful thing. It's not burdensome. It doesn't make us weary. It excites us. Pray that you allow that to happen in our lives today. Pray that those who have never heard this before, that they haven't heard any of this, that they are convicted. You draw them. They talk to somebody. We tell them about this incredible grace that comes through faith. But for those of us who know you, who are part of this, that we're teammates together, that we love one another, encourage one another, build one another up, and we never do anything out of selfish ambition because we can. I pray that we do the things that you've called us to do because you've given us the right and the honor to do so. We love you, Lord. Help us to do all these things today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.